0: Welcome back to The Urban Monk. Happy to be back in studio. uh, Pretty much done with the Prosperity film. And now I'm hanging out with a new friend who is a hero in that space. Uh, He has done some phenomenal work in the Amazon and has really lived with these people and studied with these people and has brought the principles back to create a company and a business methodology that uses the wisdom of the Amazonian shamans in how we deal with chaos and the world that we live in. Uh, Tyler Gage is the co-founder of Runa Tea. Uh, It is a wonderful, wonderful product. I've I've consumed myself and the fact that he is uh, out there doing this work and keeping to those principles uh, becomes a real kind of case study of how we could do business in the future and how we could do business that doesn't destroy the planet. So Tyler, welcome. Welcome Thanks for
1: having me. Fun to be
0: here. Yeah, well, man, this is great. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your product. I've Thank known you. you through circles, and uh, literally, it just so happened that you were in town, Perfect. and I was just like, I'll move everything, get in the studio, and here we are. I appreciate so. it.
1: I love it when it works out like that.
0: Yeah, totally, and, and and we're hanging out live. So, you know, one of my first exposures to your product was I was at Thrive Market, and yeah. I realized that, like, not only the founders, but that entire company was drinking your product, like, religiously. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, right. what is this stuff? Yeah. And so I. I had some, and I go, oh, I get it. I'm clear, mm-hmm. I'm calm, I'm energized, and I'm focused. That's the a goal. great combo. That's the goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what is, so Runa, what's what's the, the actual, what's guayusa, like what is it, and where did you kind of find it in the first place?
1: Yeah, so at Runa, all of our products are based on guayusa, which is this rare Amazonian tea leaf that comes from the upper Amazon in Ecuador. So it's a leaf that's brewed like tea, but isn't actually related to green or black tea. It's actually a variety of the holly family, Uh, that's native to this one little sliver in the upper Amazon. So botanically, it has a really interesting mix of caffeine, polyphenols, theanine, and catechins. So you get this uh, diversified blend of stimulants and more balancing compounds that give you that characteristic uh, focus and clarity. I'm hyper caffeine sensitive. Uh, when I went to the Amazon and they said this plant was energizing, I was very scared, but was really struck by the way it almost feels like it holds you up from behind as if opposed to punching you in the face like <laughs> a Red Bull or, you know, a Triple Espresso might. Um, so I fell in love with the plant. And then a lot of our business has been building the whole supply chain to bring it to market. So Guayusa is an interesting case study with us as a business because no one had ever commercially produced this. So it wasn't like coconut water that had big supply chains or acai that had big supply chains in foreign countries, made the leap to the US. When we went to Ecuador and asked these farmers that, what well, we said we wanted to pay cash to buy these leaves and put them in drinks and sell them in the United States of America, they would just give us these blank stares and then laugh hysterically. <laughs> just thought it was like a huge joke and the idea of you know money and commerce meeting the sacred historical plant was just bizarre. Uh, so it's been a lot of work, but also it's really the biggest window we had for innovation. Because as opposed to, say, fair trade coffee or chocolate, we weren't fighting against any industry. So from the get-go, we could basically put the flag at the upper end of fair trade business practices, uh, sustainable farming, permaculture, organic, rainforest-grown, and basically set the tone for Guayusa to reach market based on those principles, which were fully inspired by the spirit and culture of this leaf in the Amazon. Amazing, so one of the things
0: that is a really important thing to note here, is that this leaf, this plant, this tree, grows in the shade-covered canopy, yeah. which then creates, so it's like much like the kind of business model of Gu- Guayaquil, which mm-hmm. does the same thing, yeah. is it incentivizes the the kind of financials to make sense mm-hmm. to keep the rainforest there and grow this in the canopy. Exactly. Yeah, and so you knew this going in, and mm-hmm. um, so now the, the point is the more of this you sell, the more rainforest um, you, you save, the more deforestation you offset and all that,
1: right? Yeah, and we were very inspired by companies like Guayaquil and Sambazon and the way they've used market-driven models to support conservation. And in our case, it was a nice combination between the commercial model set by those companies and this ancient practice of forest gardening in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. In the Quichua language, they call these uh, forest gardens a chakra, different from maybe like the chakras that we know from, from other places. But it's a uh, self-sustaining way of managing rainforest and preserving biodiversity for productive means. Mm-hmm. So essentially what we did is we took that uh, traditional model, which had the cultural familiarity, and then technified it slightly with a bit more increased Guayusa production to make it more profitable than destroying the rainforest for cattle or palm or, or soy. Okay, so
0: you needed more plants per hectare or whatever in the same canopy to make the yep. financials pencil, yep. but you were able to maintain the canopy.
1: 100%, so I mean, you know, in like a tea plantation, you have like this much space between trees. In Guayusa, in the forest gardens, there's like 16 meters between trees. Yes. So where it's grown, if either of us walked around, it totally looks like the rainforest. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just using an economic incentive through production to then help solidify the economic base for these farms.
0: You know, what's fascinating to me is when we were doing the story of the cacao with the indigenous Aguna people in Panama, like we go out to the plantation, and I'm like, well, where the hell's the plantation, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly the same where we were.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, oh, got it. Got it. The, the the rainforest, everything is still intact, and that's why this works. Yep, right? exactly. And, and the people were happy and all that. So I, I want to kind of get into the economics of the grazing and the you know the things that cause the deforestation mm-hmm. and like what that you know what what's causing the cutting down of these trees in the first place. Is it mostly cattle and beef
1: or what? Like so at least in this region, it's really a mix. It's really a mix. The transformative experience I had when I was down living in Peru in college uh, with the Shipibo people, I One afternoon heard this incredible story from one of the community leaders about how his grandfather's spirit lived in this big tree by the village The next day he came back with a big chainsaw having just cut down the tree and was ready to sell it for pennies on the dollar And in my, you know, Bay Area, you know, environmentalist arrogance went up and tried to call him out on the uh, seeming hypocrisy of this maneuver and he said, well, if you had the choice between cutting down a tree or not having money to send your kid to school, what choice would you make? Mm-hmm. Or if it was cutting down a tree or not having money to send your mom to the hospital, what, what would you do, man? What's, what's your position on that? And that was a big punch in the gut for me that was mm-hmm. the major transition from sort of kind of deep, shamanic study into wanting to start a business. And it was also representative where, you know, these communities don't want to have to cut down or exploit the rainforest, but it's a sacrifice to have access to the global world and education and certain parts of healthcare that they don't they don't know. So the incentives for it, uh, a lot of it is forest degradation. So rather than just full-scale forest destruction, it's taking out key species like some of these hardwood species that then has a big ripple effect for mm. the rest of the ecology. Um, there is particularly in Ecuador a lot of African palm. Uh, in the upper Amazon there, it's a big big driver of deforestation. For palm oil? Palm oil. Yeah palm oil is big. Um, in Brazil, soy a bit more. Uh, which is actually mostly used as feed for cattle, mm-hmm. so it's a bit of a, a loop, but it's, uh, it's a puzzle. I mean, the deforestation from oil isn't actually as much. It's more the secondary impacts of oil spills and uh, destruction of community values that is the big impact there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just pulling them off to work jobs that, that aren't necessarily, exactly. yeah.
1: and that's really what we want to do is we want to make it more profitable than any other solution for people to sustainably manage farms, so more profitable than moving to an oil field, more profitable than cattle, more profitable than, Af- profitable than African palm, and if we can prove that model, that's really the strong strongest foot we can put forward, and our goal is to really transition this conversation from just morals or carbon statistics into economics. I truly believe that if we can use economics as our fighting ground, that's the most powerful way to pave a way forward. Yeah,
0: amen. You know, one of the things that I got very kind of viscerally when I was in South America talking to a lot of these individuals was, you know, these, Young men don't want to leave their moms and their sisters and their villages in this beautiful place no. to come to San Diego and mow someone's lawn.
1: Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah.
0: like you know, it's like, wh- why the hell? Like you know, we were just talking about, like building a wall mm-hmm. to keep these people out. It's just yeah. like, well, they don't want to leave their homes. Yeah. So what happens when we line up the incentives and and make the abundance work so that they can stay with their families and have livelihood that that you know is, is sustainable and actually allows them to get mm-hmm. education and thrive. So like what's a living wage? How does that work?
1: Yeah. So for us we work exclusively with family farms. So we're bizarre in the tea industry that 100% of the guayusa is grown by family farms. Almost all tea is grown in plantations. Even the majority of organic and fair trade tea is grown in plantations. So the fact that we can support local farm economies is very different. And therefore it's not about us paying them as employees, they're autonomous farmers. Mm -hmm. So we pay them um, guaranteed high fair trade prices for the Guayusa leaves. We generate a few hundred thousand dollars a year of direct cash income uh, on top of uh, community enterprise investments for about 3,000 families now. And that's a big income boost for them to support their families in the ways that they can. It is important always to note that being, quote, poor in the Amazon is much better than in a slum. I mean, these people live off the land primarily. Mm -hmm. So their ability to get yucca and plantains and fruits and hunt, they can do that very well. It's when it comes to things like emergency medicine Mm -hmm. or education where they're a bit um, stunted in that way with the resources. And our goal is really to put the decision-making power in their hands. So if someone does say, hey, I'm gonna make some money on my farm and then sell it and move to San Diego, that's their choice. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to bring a sort of paternalistic, like, oh, you're these romantic native people and we need to keep you just the way you are. Like, that—that that is, I mean, atrocious from many perspectives. Mm-hmm. We wanna say, hey, we're good business people. We're gonna give you a viable solution to manage your farms if that's what you wanna do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's not what you wanna do or however you wanna invest your resources, that's yours. We're here to be good partners.
0: So one of the things that we found in Panama, um, which really kind of blew my mind, it was, um, uh, it, it was a, it was a big issue when we were bringing this kind of like sustainable play to these island this island nation really was the sanitation right where mm-hmm. it's just like okay so we're gonna triple the amount of money coming into your community which means these plastic bottles of water and diapers are then gonna be like Barbie dolls yeah, and yeah. like you know other stuff so the sustainable growth model to try to say okay look, look this is what happened to our world. Mm-hmm when we you know grew without thinking about it so how can we intercept that for your world so that the now these guayusa trees aren't like littered with a bunch of plastic bags all over the place and yeah. that that's a hard one right it's a hard
1: one so first we created a hybrid organization so in the spirit of guayusa guayusa it's central to the communities and the spirit of collaboration and exchange in the amazon the tribes get up at 3 in the morning the whole community sits up around the fire and drinks guayusa and tell stories, interpret dreams, and the spirit of this plant is about exchange and working together to live in a healthy way as a community. So we said, what if as a business we took basically that same inspiration and design our organizational structure in the same intention? So we said we can have a business which can be the sort of leading masculine edge of income generation, production, bring products to market, and then as, you know, for lack of a better term, a feminine counterpart to that, we can have a nonprofit which can think much more broadly and holistically about how to improve livelihoods in the broadest sense of the word for these people. Mm -hmm. So how do you introduce market economics in the most biodiverse place in the world in a way that has respect and awareness and education alongside of it, and isn't just, oh, here's some income and everything's gonna work out perfectly. So through the nonprofit, we've been able to uh, invest in lots of community enterprises, do large-scale forest management planning, uh, and also do a lot of education uh, around savings cooperative development and capacity building amazing so you're actually
0: kind of you got a toe in both worlds though because you know the traditional kind of nonprofit model is do whatever you do you know don't worry about your wake uh, and then donate to charities or you know organizations that are going to go clean it up and do this but your primary business model much like like Guayaquil, is like the social enterprise model which is every time I buy a bottle of Runa mm-hmm. or you know, tea bags of Runa, what I'm also doing is supporting the economics that support you know the maintenance of, of, of this canopy, right? So yep. it's like you're on both sides of it, which is also interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think this word livelihoods we always come back to. Mm-hmm. Because if you're an Amazonian person living in the rainforest, your livelihood is the rainforest and it is your community, it's not just your income or your own Mm -hmm. self-identity. That's not how these people see themselves or the foundation of their traditions. So for us to be able to support that in a broad and holistic way, and be very conscious of this transition of indigenous traditions meeting the market. And there's incredible potential there, Mm -hmm. but it's difficult and it's Mm -hmm. messy and it takes a lot of awareness and humility and listening to weave those different levels together.
0: I know a lot of NGOs get fed up and frustrated. A lot of companies get fed up and frustrated and leave because, you know, I, I'll, you know, and again, I'm, I'm saying this with the utmost respect is, you know, you go in thinking like, you know, we're the, like, you know, destructive Westerners and then we're here to save the noble savage type mm-hmm. of thing. And it's yeah. like that, that whole kind of paradigm, which is absolutely false, mm-hmm. right? These are just people. Yeah. And so you get there and you want to help these people, and you realize they have their own intrigues, they have their own corruption, they have mm-hmm. their own dramas, they yeah. have their own embezzlement, and it's right. just like, oh man, people are people.
1: Yeah, right? absolutely. And it's hard to help that. Yeah, and that's where I think the the business approach in many ways has the most sustainability and opportunity there. Because we said, hey, we're not here to save you, like we're not here to try and manipulate your future goals, we're here to be partners. So we wanna listen, we wanna collaborate, and the foundation of our business was what we call the liberal arts approach to business. You know, I studied Amazonian languages and creative writing, and my business partner studied marine bio. So business expertise wasn't really uh, fully loaded in, uh, <laughs> in our domain when we started. So we did really the only thing we knew how to do, which was act like students. So for the first six months in Ecuador when we got going, all of our time was dedicated to talking to people, listening, trying to match perspectives, see what their, idea, their ideas were, and building the design of the business off of that collaborative listening space. So it wasn't saying, oh what do you need and we're just gonna do it. It was hey, we want a partner, here's our ideas, mm-hmm. there are your ideas. In any healthy relationship there is that beautiful fertile space of the unknown that happens when people come together and share ideas and something magical gets created. Mm-hmm. Well, five, five years running now? We've been selling for five years.
0: We've been 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 working for for about eight. Okay, so it took three years to kind of get things going Mm -hmm. and and get the supply chains going. How does one start? So if I'm like a a young entrepreneur and I'm like, yo, I love this, right, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you have mosquito bites to show for it. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. you've had, you know. Parasite the, infections, all of it. <laughs> yeah, all of it, right? So, so it's not always pretty, right? Like Indiana no. Jones. No, no one sees Indiana Jones in the off moments, right? right? But so you go in, you start these conversations, then you gotta deal with like tariffs and exports and all that. So mm-hmm. like, what's the arc of being able to actually hatch this egg?
1: So a fundamental teaching, which is where the title for the book came from, this idea of being. We'll talk about the book uh, in a second. Sorry, the book in a second. but. Uh, this idea of being fully alive in the indigenous perspective isn't this idea of being perfectly radiant, inspiring people all the time, but it's really about learning uh, from obstacles as teachers. And they really have this incredible ability to look at discomfort and challenge as opportunities for growth. Hmm. And I think most fundamentally for any entrepreneur, you have to be in that mindset. Hmm. If you can't look at the challenges and struggles for an invitation to dig deeper for your own strength and support, it's impossible. So mm-hmm. sort of foundational level, that perspective. And Growth that
0: mindset, Carol Dweck kind of stuff. Like, exactly. Yep.
1: Um, from there, we did a few things early on, which really helped. And I think similar to some of the things you talk about. So anytime we think about, you know, we're 23 in the middle of the jungle and wanting to build a beverage company in a supply chain, thinking about what that would look like five years or even a year from starting was completely paralyzing. Mm. So we set um, three-month goals we said, all right, what do we need to do for 90 days so we don't have to call our parents and have them bail us out and fly us back to, <laughs> to totally. our houses? Um, and that was a really practical way, not only to make progress, but also to build credibility. Mm. And I think as a very young entrepreneur with no experience, we'd tell people that we're starting this business, here's what we're gonna do, and 99.9% of people thought we were- Out of your minds. Out of our minds and we were gonna fail. So we said, hey, that's fair here's what I'm gonna do in the next three months. We're mm-hmm. gonna sign an agreement with the indigenous federation, we're gonna start our first processing trials, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's a, yeah, great. Three months later, we call them back and say, hey, here's what we did, here's the next three months, and that was a great way to build credibility with some of our early investors, um, and we even got the national government of Ecuador to invest in our company. Wow, yeah. wow. And how long down the arc did that take? That wasn't, that, that wasn't a not that wasn't, that wasn't at a three month mark, absolutely. Yeah. That was uh, two and a half years in. Um, they created this really pioneering investment fund inside of the government to make equity investments in growing green businesses that could support uh, impoverished people in the country. So out of 800 companies, we were one of uh, three that won, and they uh, invested half a million dollars in the company. Wow. The other reason we liked it is that their plan, which we're still working on, has been to then transition their shares to the farmers. So actually a really interesting mix of you know, for-profit, capital to grow a business, and then open and democratize the ownership structure to then bring the farmers in. Um, we so, we followed Tax that.
0: dollars, it was tax dollars going in at first. Yeah, tax
1: dollars, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in theory, every Ecuadorian owns a piece of, of Runa. Um, we were able to, to do something similar, so Leonardo DiCaprio invested in our company last year, and when he invested, we came up with this idea that he would then donate his shares to the farmers as well. So we were able to lead the charge with that investment structure, Um, And I think it's a great model, again, as we talked about, of trying to break this business and charity disconnect. Mm -hmm. And look at how, not only in an operation of a business, like we do, but even in the structure, the funding, the nuts and bolts of how business operates, how can we be more creative and innovative Hmm. and draw from different traditions to build businesses that look pretty different than the ones that we're used to. So let's talk about cold hard
0: business for a second, right? So DiCaprio, I mean, whatever, he makes 20 million a movie and, and he can afford to donate. He can afford to do that. Right, but let's <laughs> just say he's like, yo, you know, this is, this is my money uh, and I need you know a return. Mm-hmm. Do you structure it in a way where he gets a certain
1: return before he can basically then divest and or just you know, let his shares go? So most of the money we've raised has been a bit more traditional, uh, mostly from family offices and a lot of other celebrities and angel investors. And it is a nice thing about the business where the more beverages we sell, the more income we create for farmers. So there isn't really a fundamental disconnect between the core growth model of the beverage company and Mm -hmm. the impact that we're creating. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, if we continue to do well, the investors, some of them will say, hey, I'm going to donate all my profits. Some will say part of it. Some will Mm -hmm. say great job with the business thanks to the return and I'm glad we could create a sustainable income source for the farmers. So we haven't created any um, fixed model for mm-hmm. sort of limited returns on on investment, mm-hmm. um, but have a lot of very mission aligned investors who have also given grants, who have sort of informally set aside part of their return to go back to the Foundation or directly to the farmers.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. You know, uh, Jeffrey Hollander of uh, Seventh Generation yeah. was doing this, where he was trying to you know give a percentage of the company back to the employees mm-hmm. every year, and you know there was obviously pushback from some of the capital sources and all that. I mean, this is it's never it's never pretty, yeah. you know, w- because people actually want. I mean, it's self-interest you know enlightened self-interest versus you know interest for for the collaborative and I think that's the conversation that's now happening right mm-hmm. is the independent versus interdependent you know yeah. m- mine versus ours mm-hmm. and so you're at that kind of bleeding edge of that um, and you have kind of conscious investors that are helping that conversation move forward but it's really interesting what's manifesting what could come from this, too. Um, you know, look, no, no margin, no motive in business, mm-hmm. right? So people want to come in, they want some returns, obviously, or they don't want to lose their money, to be, to, to, to be, you know, frank on the front end. Right. But then afterwards, it's like, how does this kind of keep building, and what's the legacy? So, as you are scaling this right now, um, it's been five years. Um, you know, you're you're in Whole Foods, you're in Thrive Market, uh, Amazon's a big place where, where you distribute, and, and it's a wonderful product. Um, where do you see this going? Like, what's the long-term mission of like? You know, are you trying to grow
1: back and offset rainforest? So for us, it's primarily driven by income generation. So we're an organization that truly believes that the main driving force has to be income generation for farmers, and that's the portal through which we can do all the conservation work and. Uh, support the local economies. So, thereby, it means that selling as many beverages as we can is the name of the game. And mm-hmm. at this point with the company in the US, it's a very focused beverage company. Mm-hmm. It's all about the ins and outs of promotion and distribution and product innovation and the things which are exciting but very very beverage industry looking, mm-hmm. um, which have the impact of what we create in Ecuador. Sure. Um, so, on the foundation side, we're doing some really cool things to amplify impact and I'm spending more of my time there because it's all the more ripe for innovation. And as an entrepreneur, not a, a beverage executive, it's more uh, high impact for me. So a couple of things we're doing, we have been getting involved with building some of the world's first medical clinics for Amazonian plant medicine. Uh, so trying to create actual clinics and facilities where Western doctors and traditional healers can side by side treat patients from around the world and look to do clinical research to potentially prove the efficacy of these treatments. And as far as I can see, this might be the singular uh, potential for global industrial interest in protecting these resources. Mm -hmm. If we can tap into the demand for health and healthcare and that pharma um, dominance in the world and show that these plants are more effective at treating autoimmune disorders, anxiety, depression, are two of the things that we're looking at, the potential interest in conservation from that sort of like what's in it for me Mm -hmm. for the global audience, could be exponentiated more than anything else I can see.
0: Yeah, you've a multi trillion dollar industry into the mix, and suddenly yep. the rainforest uh, has a lot more value for everybody. Exactly. Actually, um, you know, offline, I'm going to introduce you. There's a doctor, there's a group of doctors that I work with that do naturopathic medicine, and they have clinics in. Ecuador. Oh wow. Um, and I could get I could get you lots of boots on the ground. Would love that. That'd yeah. be super helpful. And, and their whole thing is, you know, you show up. I'm actually this is through my hospital order and so like, you know, these guys have you know, I have a certain amount of like volunteer work I do every year type of thing. And you show up and the whole the whole point is, you know, okay, look, barefoot doctor, what do you guys use for this this and this mm-hmm. let's bring back your local indigenous tradition first and then you know interventions if need be mm-hmm. right like if someone's going into labor yeah. i get it yeah. right but there's a lot in the lifestyle spectrum that is what's costing the most money for sure right yeah. and and so you know then there's you know basic things like sanitation mm-hmm. In, in a lot of these communities would offset a lot of that medical cost if done right. So, 100%. Yeah, so great. That's, I, you know, this is uh, cutting edge, right? Like you guys are um, really, you know, dealing with a lot of the social issues in, in in a very small amount of space with a very specific, you know, population. But, you know, in looking at how to take this, like if I, if I'm watching this right now as like a young entrepreneur and I'm like, yes, I have, you know, um, I'm mission-driven. I really want to support, you know, all these things that I care about, and I want to do it through business. What are the lessons I could learn here? Like, how do I start? How do I begin to unpack the wisdom of, you know, this book? And it's a great book, by the way. I highly recommend it. Available on Amazon now, probably everywhere books are sold, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, called "Fully Alive." And this is really his lessons from the Amazon going into business in life. So it's it's um, it, it, it's such a new era um, for business and business schools that I think you should be lecturing at at every major business school in the country. What would you say to these young people?
1: So it's a weird experience because Stanford has a big case study on RUNA and I go speak there and Harvard and Brown and as someone who didn't study business, it's a very strange experience (laughs) to be going back. Um, So two things, for both small companies and big companies who are looking at the similar question of infusing not just concrete impact, but it's also this question of meaning and purpose, which the two I don't think are extricable, and I think in the, social impact space, they, they get separated more frequently than they should. Mm-hmm. But the first point of it for me is digging deep into the authenticity of who you are and what you do. And I think especially in the bigger company perspective, it's trying to follow trends or think about what we should do or what would be right or what would be looked upon well. I admire the companies who dig into the spirit of who they are, what they do, and try and create more impact internally and externally around that um, set of core values and core competency. So for us, we're, involved in Amazonian plants and Amazonian cultures. So mm-hmm. we're digging very deep there to do everything we can in that space. We're not trying to you know, donate books to schools in Brooklyn, which would be amazing. It's just not who we are and the authenticity of what we do. Mm-hmm. It gets us rallied and therefore has the most momentum and, and magnetism. Um, the other thing just in terms of uh, the how-to side of it is I'm a big believer in the value of the unusual and the unexpected. I think uh, our stories often got told is you know we had this perfectly clear idea, and charged in the Amazon, and built this whole business. In reality, I was anxious and depressed when I was 19, uh, through following a few strange curiosities, found myself in the jungle. And a lot of it has been this willingness to listen to those curiosities and feelings that are just under the surface, and don't always line up with the, the sort of rational loops of things. And I feel like some of the most concrete leaps in our business came from being willing to either listen to some deeper intuition or follow something that didn't seem linear or clear at the time that then unpacked itself in a broader and richer way. And I think in the world of entrepreneurship, we love to talk about the reality distortion fields and dreams and these things in more philosophical ways, but I think it actually can be a very practical skill set of deliberately listening and following curiosities and valuing and inviting in the unusual to learn and to grow.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you look at Dolly, you look at Einstein, you've got all these guys that can actually like, you know, pop in the clutch and go to this place of creativity and this place of, of instinct to then guide and follow the breadcrumbs into, you know, where they ended up, you know, really sitting in their genius. Yeah. Um, you, you know, for me, I, I actually, you know, see this almost as like a binary system, is there's this new symbiotic model of business that's all about you know people planet purpose and all these kind of quadruple bottom line types of, of conversations and then there's this old parasympath- parasympathetic, parasympathetic uh, uh, parasitic mm-hmm. model yeah. right which is about extraction and externalities and it doesn't matter because you know our bottom line is our bottom line and every quarter we got to put up some numbers and uh, you know basically let the government or let .orgs or society deal with the wake. Mm -hmm. And so in this new symbiotic model of life-affirming business, um, where can we remain competitive? I mean, you're trying, so you're playing this game, right? Like, you're doing packaging and bottling and flavors and all this kind of stuff, because you know what? People are drinking Dr. Pepper. Mm-hmm. People are, you know, LeBron is, is down for Sprite, right? Yeah. Right. I doubt he ever drinks it, but yeah. so, so this is the competition. Mm-hmm. How does a young, scrappy company that means well and is doing the right thing
1: compete on that on that platform? I truly believe that people are desperate for authenticity now it's like a, a certain nutrient that we're very malnourished on and it's becoming increasingly clear. And it's something that the big companies can't invent, they can't concoct in a laboratory, it's not some marketing exercise that they can come up with. The sort of work that we do and lots of other companies in our space, when it comes from a deeper place of intention and spirit and meaning, you can't fake that. It's mm-hmm. just impossible. And I think there's that law of the universe for a blessed way that there's there's no there's no way to penetrate that without showing up in a vulnerable way. So I think that's the singular competitive advantage that we have, and in the market, it's it's showing. You know, The bigger companies are recognizing that they need to support businesses like Aruna, um, or Guaiki, or Samazon, because that's what people are magnetized towards. Mm-hmm. I think it's embedded in our wiring that we need that, and we're very malnourished on, um, those types of products, but really those values. Mm. And I think products are such a beautiful way to have something tangible and tactile mm. that people can consume and then relate to people very far away. And for me, it's very Amazonian, that spirit of trade and exchange and what we put in our bodies and where that comes from. It's such a, a concrete way to bring worlds together, um, sort of horizontally, but then also vertically as well.
0: Yeah, and look, if I feel like you know the world is falling apart and I wanna save the rainforest, and this small little action, buying this versus Coca-Cola, can do that mm-hmm. that's a pretty easy swap for me exactly right? and I'm spending you know probably dollar for dollar not not that much more or less it's no. comparable pricing and all that but one goes towards a supply chain that makes me you know feel good about what I'm doing has meaning has purpose all these things that people are like struggling with right now right yeah. is you could you could jack into that yeah so Guayaquil, Savazon, and um, Runa are three examples and there's other smaller ones out there you know a lot of people are starting to kind of get into this model saving rainforest tree canopy, Offsets carbon, mm-hmm. all this good stuff, right? Yeah. Um, there's other big world problems, so it's like, you know, I don't want anyone watching this to be like, oh, okay, well, those guys got the rainforest thing, like, you know, we're handled. <laughs> yeah. uh, pick a problem, right? right. Like the, <laughs> you know, the oceans can use some help, yeah. you know. Like, there's there's so much. There's sex trafficking. There's so much. Mm-hmm. So, how do we apply this frame or this filter, if you will, um, in how we think for a world problem? Let's say I wanted to solve sex trafficking is the last thing I said, right? It's a big problem, it's a growing problem on the planet, so then how do I create some sort of economic means to offset that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so I could brainstorm this with you, but it's like, okay, go to where, you know, people are selling their, you know, where the poverty is the greatest and people are selling their children into this,
1: come up with an economic solution, right? Is that? So, there's really no easy answers to a lot of this, and I mean, that's why it's also uh, so challenging. Um, I think there's no, substitute for spending the time and going deep. And just like in our personal practices, if you don't spend the time to cultivate and go deep, it's similar to the point before, there's no way to pretend or sort of invent around that. So with any of these issues, the most creative solutions I've seen are coming from people and communities who are truly immersed in the problem and going directly into it as opposed to trying to look at it from the outside. Mm-hmm. And the varieties of tactics and strategies for sex trafficking versus clean water versus conservation They're gonna be very different and some are better for for for-profits, some for non-profits, some for hybrids. There's so much texture and subtlety that needs Mm -hmm. to get um, assessed and understood that just doesn't happen unless you're willing to really immerse yourself and take it personally. Um, It's one of the things I talk about in the book is that this idea of like don't take things personally in some ways is a great teaching. In other ways, I think we need to live in a world where we take things very personally and it's through relationship and through community and through that meaning and being affected by things where the best innovation and best creativity comes from. So I think the other great solutions of things, I would bet will come from those uh, sort of immersions and that kind of intimacy. Love it.
0: The book is called Fully Alive. Uh, Tyler Gage, co-founder of Runa T. Got a lot of friends in high places because you deserve it. You um, are doing great work. You're out there just blazing trails, really. And if um, you're not blazing trails, you're probably planting <laughs> in. The, yeah, in the in the gap. Or I, something, follow right? I follow you. I follow Yeah, exactly <laughs> like, it's, it's such a like a, a young American pioneer thing to say right and you're like, well, yeah, actually we're not doing that anymore um, So uh, I think that this is a required reading for anyone who wants to step into Symbiotic capitalism anyone who wants to step into this new model of business uh, And man, this is just the beginning for you like I want this You know when uh, you know even if you're like at a burger joint, you know instead of fries and a coke I want people to be offering this because I know that that makes the world a better place and that you know if you're getting a a bottle of runa tea or dispensing even you know some form of runa tea you know that you're part of a solution right and so let's keep going let's keep making this a reality let's make the tree canopy something that is preserved and I mean it's our
1: planet right and I know that you're fighting for it so I want to thank you for everything you've done. Thanks for your support we're we're doing our best and following the guidance of people like you and trying to work on everything together. Right on well
0: drink runa tea it's on amazon go right now get yourself some taste a few of them and while you're on amazon get the book let's support his work let's support the planet let's do this together i will see you next time